And last week, I kind of started the conversation with reminding you that Christmas isn't just a good story, that it's also good news. And that this week, we've been reminded of the power of good news as you've clicked through your news channels and what you've seen is the approval of the vaccine, that um, whether it was the UK or whether it was um, the United States, like on both sides of the Atlantic, that there's vaccines being approved that are moving forward, and that as soon as today and this coming week, individuals will be able to get a vaccine for COVID-19. And um, that's super exciting. And to see the world kind of awaken to the good news that that came, and that Christmas isn't just a good story. It's more than a manger scene. It's good news. It's good news that changes everything. And today I want to look at one of those areas, one of those intersection points, and one of the implications of what the angels proclaimed when they said that it's um, good news, great joy, that there's peace on earth. What's the implication of that profound reality that there can be peace? Not just some profound theological, you know, singable kind of peace, but livable, experienceable peace. And to start, I thought we would look at um, this little rare thing that the United States Postal Service does um, that gives you insight every single year into what kids are thinking in the U.S. See, the United States Postal Service, uh, years ago, uh, created this special operation where United States postal workers could open up the mail that was addressed to Santa Claus. It's illegal to open up mail addressed to anyone else, so this was a special special, operation. kind of thing given to the postal workers. And the kind of their desire was that the postal workers opening it up uh, would periodically come across children who are in needy situations. And postal workers in the early days of this program could actually send uh, gifts to these kids on behalf of Santa. Now it's expanded and it's online and um, thousands of kids are able to be connected with individuals like you and me who could go to the website, and it's all anonymous, but the Postal Service, when you drop off the items they're requesting in the letter, they ha- there's a number attached to it, and they're able to get it shipped to the kid from Santa Claus. So it's a really neat program, but one of the best parts about the program is the, is the letters themselves. And the Postal Service actually publishes some of those letters every year. And while some of the letters I will not touch today because, quite honestly, they're gut-wrenching, um, we'll come back to maybe one in a couple of weeks, I-, I wanted to point out one that was probably my favorite because it was so honest. Um, it came from a little girl named Savannah in Massachusetts. So maybe one of your kids. I don't know. But here's what Savannah says as she wraps up her letter where she's asking for stuff and paint pens. Um, she says, P.S., I'm sorry if I've been bad. It's really hard because of COVID-19 and online school. And then in parentheses, let's just be real school in general. And she's like, I'm trying to be good. Hope you understand, Santa. I thought there was something really refreshingly honest about Savannah's letter. She's like, look, Santa, I got to be real. As I wrap up this letter, you know, like I know I've asked for all these things, but I haven't been that good this year. It's been a kind of a hard year for me. And this actually illustrates something I was having a conversation with my daughter about this week, that as we kind of have seen play out over 2020 and as she engages with classmates at school, that it's like, hey, Ella, I want to give you, it's not so much a principle as it is just a general observation. 
And it's this, it's that hurting people are often the ones who hurt people. That if you spend time and you, you find yourself on the other side of being hurt, that if you actually dug in a little bit and you got the backstory, what you'd find is that oftentimes it's the hurting people who hurt people. It's not always true, but a lot of times it is. It's the cycle of what people were exposed to as kids that they never dealt with, and then they become adults with those same issues because issues don't go away. They just grow up with you. And then those people end up continuing the cycle. And that this idea, this general observation, Savannah kind of illustrates for us the fact that, you know, when life is hard, when, when you're hurting, when you're going through a really dark time, whether it's financially or relationally, um, whether you have stress or anxiety, that oftentimes you end up lashing out and hurting others. And this year has had a lot of hurting people. And as we kind of lean in and get closer to that time where we are going to be able to see family members, whether it's digitally or whether it's through kind of face-to-face contact, um, I know that for some of us, uh, I've heard you say that I've waited all year and I'm going to see my family this Christmas. And for others, it's, um, you know, you've made choices to, to kind of stay digital and you're going to see them on the other side of a screen and not be able to see them on the other side of the room. That regardless of how you experience friends and families and loved ones and neighbors this Christmas, what you can almost bet money on is that you're going to be encountering hurting people. People, whether it's because of the pressures that this year's had through the pandemic or whether the pressures that came through the political avenue of an election year and all that came with that, or someone who's walking through financial pressure of potentially losing a job or having to close the business, that you're probably going to engage someone who's hurting. And it's probable that you're one of those hurting people too. And as we talk about the first Christmas and the peace that was proclaimed, what does it look like this Christmas as we interact with those type of people? People who've been hurt. People who are disappointed for what they thought this year was going to hold and in reality what they actually got. Now, to do that, I want to take you to a passage that's not the Christmas story. But it comes out of the implications of the Christmas story. You see, that because of the first Christmas, it changes every Christmas after and every day after, too. And this individual, one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament letters, one of the um, kind of one of the most famous Christians of all time, is the Apostle Paul. Paul um, wrote a bulk of the New Testament letters, and one of the letters he writes is to a group of people he's never actually met but who are in one of the most um, difficult and challenging places in the entire world. They're in Rome. Rome is a city unlike any other city in the world at the time. It's an extraordinary place that many of its ruins still stand today, that for a variety of uh, historical and geographical reasons, Rome was a city that was built to last. And so, Here in the midst of the Roman Empire is the early movement of what's called Christianity. And to be a Christian in Rome, believing and saying certain things, if you remember from last week, um, if you heard the message, that oftentimes were statements that were attributed to Caesar that Christians were attributing to Jesus, Jesus, like he's the Savior of the world, he's the Lord, he's the Son of God, all the things that were said about Emperor Augustus at the time. 
And so here's this potential volatile situation in Rome, and, and Christians are trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, and what does it look like to live out the Christian faith. And he writes this letter to the church in Rome that we call uh, the Book of Romans. And the first 11 chapters of Rome are this rich theological, logical, rational kind of argument for why Christianity makes sense, why, Christ, why we need Christianity. Uh, it kind of unpacks why Christmas was so significant and kind of the implications of God in flesh with us. And so Romans 1 through 11 is this profoundly deep material that is um, probably unmatched in some ways in um, literature throughout history. And then from 11 to 12, it takes this turn. In chapter 12, you have a statement that says, therefore. And therefore, as I teach people in the 112, when I teach them how to read the Bible, whenever you see therefore, you should look to see what therefore is therefore, right? It's a, a phrase that turns, that moves us, that fleshes out what we've heard before. And so in some ways, that therefore of Romans 12 verse 1 is the kind of the hinge for the entire book of Romans. He moves into 12 saying, okay, I've talked all about, therefore, in view of God's mercy. I've talked all about the mercy and the hope and the grace of God. Now, let me tell you what that looks like in the place where you live, in Rome, in your home. And as he's unpacking that, we get down to verse 17. And he, to a group of people who've been persecuted, who've watched loved ones die, who felt financial and employment pressure because of their faith, they felt the familial pressure of people turning their backs on them because they had abandoned the faith of their ancestors. To those people, he writes these words. He says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He's getting very practical, speaking to what they have experienced living in Rome because of their practicing of the faith. And that they've been on the other side of vicious comments, of brutal violence, and in subtle systemic pressures because of their faith. And he's coaching them how they should respond. And he says, do not, retake, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. He's calling them to a different predisposition. He's like, as Christians, your desire, your goal, your posture is towards peace. In verse 17, he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, the urgency, the emphasis is on them, not the ones who are doing the things to them. And this is a really practical piece of advice, one that this week, honestly, I experienced on the way here uh, Friday, and I had this is kind of a busy time of year for me, and so I was anxious to get here earlier and trying to get through some things, and um, as I go to turn on this side street to drive here, there's a whole group of work trucks blocking the other side of the lane, which is not a problem for me because I'm on this side. So as I start to drive, I notice there's some cars coming, and this car comes around the truck, so I just wait. They were there first, and so I just kind of, kind of hold the brake. And as the car comes around me, I begin to pull forward and start to drive through my lane. And out of nowhere, on the other side, this car, this really large car comes whipping around the trucks. And, and now it's like coming straight down the street. And it's not slowing down. It's speeding up. And I'm already coming down the road. 
And I'm like, oh, oh, this is how it's going to go, huh? And I'm like, you got a big car. I got a big car too, right? I got a Buick LeSabre. I got an ashtray in my back seat. What you going to do with that? You don't want to hit this tank, right? And so, like, all this is playing out in my mind really fast because this car is clearly, like, wherever they've got to go is more important where they think I have to go. And so they're driving, speeding up, and I decide, okay, like, instead of playing chicken at 8.30 in the morning, I'm going to put my car in reverse, and I back it up, and I let them go by. Now, in my head, I'm like, you know, high-fiving myself, being like, way to go, way not to get in a road rage accident this morning, way not to have chicken and careen someone's car into, a, you know, a, like a yard, because um, this is a residential street. Um, Chris, I'm so proud of you. And then, you know, like, I'm thinking through that, and I'm thinking that they're probably like, man, whoever that old gentleman is in that view of Glissaber is the kindest individual I've ever met. And so I expect at least, like, the, like, the head nod or the like, thank you. Cause I was there first. Like I was actually driving down my lane in my place and I waited on the first car. And so now my turn, like I, I'm going to anticipating they're going to acknowledge me as they ride by. And as I'm sitting there, you know, just waiting for my moment that I'm so proud and that they're about to acknowledge. She like flies by me with this smug, like look on her face. Like, yeah, yeah, you, you better have gotten out my way. And all of a sudden every Everything in me was like, oh, I know she didn't. But like, if I could do that, I'll go, I'm going to run. You know, like, everything in me wanted to be like, why did I do I should have just driven straight because she didn't. You're not appreciating me. Right? Like, because why Paul says all of this is because the default, like, we have to be taught this. Like, you don't have to teach a toddler. I've got a toddler. I don't have to teach him to be selfish. I don't have to teach him that if he, his sister does something he doesn't like that he needs to hit her back. I don't have to teach him to repay or to practice revenge. That's not a lesson. I'm like, all right, son, sit down. I want to teach you a valuable life lesson today because one day this woman's going to be in this large car and she's going to come down the street and you're going to want to be stopping for her. But no, 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 son, do not give her that privilege. You're going to drive straight into that lady, okay? No, no, like I didn't have to teach that because that's the default. And Paul knows that's the default for us. And what he's calling us to as Christians is different than the default that the world operates on. He's calling us to a posture and a predisposition towards peace. One that doesn't lose control, that's reminded of who's in control. The posture who recognizes that personal responsibility is the starting point. Because what Paul knows and what you and I have experienced is that being offended is inevitable in life. And in 2020, it's a guarantee it's going to happen regularly. But Paul's point is that living offended is a choice. You and I have a choice, like I had this week with that lady. I could sit and stew, or I could put on my best Elsa and let it go. Like, I could just move on, drive on, and keep going. Not letting what that woman did to me stay on me. Right? Like Sister Taylor Swift says, I could have sh just shake it off, right? And so I shook it off and kept driving. And this is what Paul is calling us to. Because living offended is a choice. You and I have an option. Because if you're in a continuous search to be offended, you will always, always find what you're looking for. Like if your desire is to constantly be irritated at other people, 
then congratulations, you're in the right place to have that. Just get in your car, just turn on your television, just get out of bed in the morning. Because there is something, always, someone, always waiting to offend you. And what Paul is saying is that because of the first Christmas, because of the peace that's proclaimed that comes through Jesus, we can live out this Christmas differently. That we can be people of peace whose disposition and posture is to stay in control and to, to kind of go high when others want to go low. And what I'm not saying in this, because I think this is really important as a disclaimer, as I'll continue to move through this passage, is Paul is not saying don't have boundaries. If you're in an abusive relationship, this is Paul's not speaking to you. If you're being verbally, emotionally, or physically abused, this is not a passage for you. There's one thing to have boundaries. This is about our belief being fleshed out in everyday life. And, and so I just want to give you that in case you're in a situation, circumstance, you're processing through and you're like, oh, you know, I'm just supposed to be this person of peace. No, Paul's not saying for us to be doormats. He's calling us to live a life of a diplomat. And that's different than being in an abused relationship. And what Paul is kind of fleshing out as we walk through this posture of peace is, so what does this look like? How does this kind of flesh out? What does this different way of living looks like? And Paul says, you know, well, it begins, he says, on the contrary. He's like, this is a different way of thinking. This is a contrary way of living and seeing and doing life. The Christian life, if you were to kind of take a snapshot, is a life that looks contrary. It tends to swim upstream when others are going downstream. It seems to be, it, it is a, a, a faith of hope and love and peace in a world that's filled with hate and chaos and confusion. It's a contrary way of living life. It's marked by generosity, not greed. It's different. He says, look, this different way of thinking and doing. He said, in this situation, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's, he's alluding to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He's He's saying, remember what Jesus said? It wasn't just what Jesus said. It was what Jesus did. He says, you will heap burning coals on their head. He is not literally saying, oh, this is how we get back at people. Yeah, we're going to do these good things so that they feel bad. That is not loving. That's called manipulation. He's not advocating for manipulation. He's advocating for them to have inspiration and it to hit them upside their head and they realize, whoa, these people, this person is different. The way they have treated me is different than what they should have done or what I would have done. Because Paul has anchored this peace posture and personal responsibility of making a choice. The whole call to the contrary, is the reminder of them that they have a choice, not to revenge, not, not to, to take and to repay. Because Paul knows that when you repay someone or you take revenge, you never get back what you lose. How many movies have you seen? How many stories have you read of individuals who are motivated by revenge that when they finally get it, they say, finally, I feel whole and complete now. 
revenge and repaying people for evil, it doesn't get back what they got from you. It just robs you even more because it gives you a promise of peace and it just leaves you feeling even more in pieces. It leaves you feeling even more powerless because that's what's underneath the surface is power. Your desire to take back that power that you felt like they took from you. And that desire for that reclaiming that power is often the lie that revenge serves on the dish. It says, hey, if you do this, you, you get to take back what they took from you. And this is why I think Paul is being so careful as he's unpacking this argument to remind them that even leave room for God's wrath. He's, he's calling them not to, oh, take a step back so God can hit them with a lightning bolt. It's a it's speaking to the fundamental lie that revenge, that revenge mindset has, which is you can take back the power they took from you. Paul is saying, no, remember, you not, you're not the judge. You're not the jury. God is. You can't reclaim the power, but you can submit to the one who is ultimately in power. You can acknowledge the fact that there has been an injustice done, but also recognize that there's a God of justice who in the end has won. And that, especially in the backdrop of 1 through 11, is a reminder of the mercy that God has given to me and to you. So it's not wrong to want justice in situations. I just think, can I just be real with you? I don't find myself oftentimes wanting justice. In those moments, I do, but what I have in the voice inside of my head is saying, you know, justice is blind, Chris, and you demand justice for them, then there's also justice for you. And I don't want what I deserve. I'm so grateful for the cross and what Jesus did. And oftentimes, because of that mercy, because of that grace, I don't give people what they deserve because I recognize fundamentally that God hasn't given me what I deserve. He's given me something I don't deserve at all. And I think that does something to you internally. It gives you this like, okay, God, you're in control. Like, ultimately, you're going to sort and sift this thing out. You're the judge. You have the gavel. But what he's reminding them of what Jesus did is he's like, look, instead of lashing out, love back. Instead of attacking, show kindness. Jesus was really careful when he was unpacking for his disciples what would be the mark of their life. He didn't say the mark of our life would be that we're right, even though I think we are theologically because of who he is. Now, he says, the mark of your life will be your love, the love that I have for you that you're going to love, that's going to love through you. That's to be your mark. And all of us recognize this. I've sat with couples and with adults who, even if they never accepted it early in their relationship, by the end of their relationships, they start to realize that you can be right and win every single argument. And in the end, end up all alone and wrong. Now, you can win every argument 
in your relationship. But Jesus didn't call us to be marked by our rightness, even though we are sometimes. He called us to be marked by our love. And I think that's a fundamentally different way, right? When someone's hungry, your enemy is hungry, feed them. That's really practical. Man, what do I do with that evil, you know, things I can't say out loud person over there? Well, they're hungry, Jesus says. So spit on them and laugh at them and walk by them? No. He's like, go feed them. They're thirsty. Laugh at them? No. Love them. Give them something that can replenish their soul. Like, I think what he's saying is that love is focused on winning the fight for them, not on winning the fight with them. And this is a really profound thing that's worth unpacking just for a couple minutes. That oftentimes what we think about with our enemies is winning the fight with them. And then Jesus says, no, you're going to fight for them. You're going you're to be for them. They're hungry, give them food. They're thirsty, give them water. They're naked, give them clothes. They have needs, meet them. That's how we're to be for them. Fight for them, for their good. Not with them for your own good. And let's just be real. This is way, way different than the world. This, in fact, some of you probably get offended at the idea of being nice to your coworker and doing something nice for them when all they've done is said and done nasty things to you. Right? But the way Jesus lives out is completely different. The life he calls us to live out is completely on the contrary to what we see other places. What fighting for them practically looks like, even in our own household, this is something that we visually do as a couple um, in my parenting as well, is that let's say this is the issue, right? Let's say it's finances, or let's say this is, you know, um, some parenting dispute or some calendar conflict we have um, back when people had things to do. And it can be really easy when you first start to, like, deal with the issue is that you start by kind of arguing about this, whether it's like, well, you know, what are, you know, we don't have the money to afford that right now. Well, we could put it on a credit card, but I don't want to put it on a credit card. I don't want to pay interest. And you're like arguing about this item. And then it's like the temperature starts to get turned up. And what started over um, something as silly as buying a new vacuum cleaner or um, picking up your kid from soccer practice has, has now kind of like drifted over. And now it's not, no longer attacking this problem. It's attacking the person. And it's like in-laws are being brought in and things from three years ago are being like brought back up. And the way they squeeze the toothpaste and load the dishwasher and the way they don't brush their teeth as much as they should. Like, it's just all this stuff is getting brought in. And it started with a calendar problem. It started with something, like, really practical. But what happens is when you're squared off like this and you're trying to deal with this issue, eventually this issue can fade away, and now you're the issue or I'm the issue. And in our marriage, one of the practical things we do if we've got something contentious we're dealing with is um, we'll, like, sit beside each other. 
Not across from each other. No table sitting, no couch sitting across. It's like, I'll come squeeze up, and we're like right here, and, you know, I'm like, yo, girl, what's up? You smell good, right? And so anyways, we're, we're, we're fighting. And um, so we're like really close, and, and, and one of us will say, hey, remember, the issue is not you or me. The issue is this calendar conflict. The issue is this financial issue. The issue is fill in the blank. You're not the issue. I'm not the issue. This is the issue. And we are going to tackle this issue together. We're not going to fight with each other. We're going to fight for each other because we are team causey. Every house has a culture, right? You grew up in a culture. I grew up in a culture. And one of the things that's annoying about our home's culture is that it is like team causey. Whenever there's conflict, it's like team causey all the way. Like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Right? I mean, like, we're obnoxious team causey people. Because in our household, like everybody out there may be against us today, but we will always be for each other in this house. And that like team causey is something that even into my daughter, like if like, you know, because she's starting to kind of like exhibit some like pre-teenager stuff, right? And I'm like, have no clue. And, and so even with her, I'm mean, like, I'll sit beside her. I'm like, hey, boo-boo, remember this is the problem. We're trying to work through this. And the reason we're working through this is because I love you. And, you know, this is what's good. This is the good and this is the bad. And, and so, but I'm not fighting with you. I'm fighting for you and for us. We had this, situa- uh, this situation happen with um, a while back ago with a neighbor that um, really made me, man, stinking mad. Because um, it was something that I, I felt was a threat to, like, our family. And everything in me wanted to do exactly like what I wanted to do after that lady rode by me with her smugness. Was I wanted to, like, kind of, oh, oh you know what? Like, I may, I, I may be suffering from the pandemic pudge and, and COVID-19, like the college weight gain program. I may have been on that. But there's still muscle underneath it. I will straight up take you down. You mess with my family. Team calls you all the way. Hoo-hoo. Right? Like, I am ready. And one of the things that, like, that night, I remember Jenny and I were praying and, like, starting to pray specifically. You know, it's really hard to punch somebody in the face when you're praying good things for them. It's really hard. It's really hard to say, God, I want you to bless them. I, I, like, I want you to, like, um, bless their business because I know this year has been hard. Like, it's really hard praying those things. And it's really hard practicing those things. So, like, my daughter, because of the situation, she was aware. And so we have a family meeting. We're like, how are we going to deal with them? And I'm like, well, I can slash their tires. And, you know, not really. It's like, all right, no, how are we going to circle up? How are we going to demonstrate our faith in this situation? Because I'm angry. You're hurt. But there's a better way. There's his way. So let's figure out that today. And so, like, our family rallied, and each one of us did something. And I even approached him and said, hey, I know you guys started a business. I have some skill sets in certain areas around business. I'd love to just kind of give you, volunteer some time. Actually, I sat down and started thinking through some ideas for you. Here's some of the ideas I have. I th- I'm really excited about your business. I think it could explode. And here's some of the ways that we could do that. And, I, man, I'm, I'm volunteering. You, don't, you would never have to pay me, of course. Um, like, I just want to give you some of these ideas and help you point you to some resources that could help you make more money. Because we were determined, no matter what, that we were not going to let 
the evil win. Which is what Paul essentially in the midst of this thing is trying to remind them of, right? If you notice the very last part, he says, after he quotes Jesus, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He reminds them of the power and the beauty of not just Jesus' words, but of Jesus' way. Because what Paul knows at this juncture in life is that the Christian faith, right? Jesus Christ crucified on a cross that we, if you're a Christian, you believe that the worst possible thing that could ever happen in humanity, that humans kill God when he tries to come for them, that, that we kill God on the cross, that the worst possible evil that had overcome and the way that they killed him, three days later, turned into the greatest day in human history. When Jesus came out of the grave and out of the grave, he brought victory. He brought hope. He brought love. At the core of the Christian faith, Jesus could say this because he would do this just a couple years later. He would be marked by the way, as they curse him, he blesses them. That he would sacrifice his life for those who were his enemies. And that Paul, understanding the bigger, broader theme, says, look, I want to remind you who we are. It's not Team Causey, it's Team Jesus. That who we are are people not overcome by evil, but who are people who overcome evil with good. That we're people who rally who stand together, and who believe in the end, love wins. And that that has been our headline for 2,000 years. That what Paul ultimately transformed him in that encounter with Christ is that his disciples, Jesus' disciples go out, even after they watch Jesus crucified, and then they see him come back from the dead. They're like, we're going to allow we're going to have our lives marked by love. So they're, they're giving things away. They're being generous. They're making a difference. They're loving and serving and healing people. And it's starting to be this movement that's growing and expanding throughout the Roman Empire. And it's going beyond Jerusalem where it initially started. And it's growing and gathering steam. And Paul is watching it. And he's like, I've got to stop this thing. This thing is evil. This thing is bad. Um, this thing is completely against what my faith represents and so he starts to try to overcome this christian movement that he called the way and then what what does he find even when he sets up to destroy it it's the love of jesus that transforms him and that that christian movement would continue over the course of 2000 years that what we'll talk about next week in fact that there's that so much of the humanitarian aid, so many of the models and the way that we think about doing good came from the early church and how they leveraged and lived their lives beyond themselves. That they saw what happened with Jesus as a model for what could happen with us too. That we can be people who overcome evil with good. That we can be people because of the first Christmas and God's presence with us all the way through Easter when he was ultimately crucified and was resurrected, that he had overcome, that love had won, that it happened through God's son, Jesus. 
and that that was the beginning of a spark that became this brush fire that's now this wildfire of love called the church. And so this Christmas, regardless of the type of people you're going to interact with, regardless of the type of pressure, the hurt that you've had or the hurt they've had, this year you can go in to those situations, those circumstances, those gatherings, physical, digital, or whatever, and in between, between. Like with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers over Zoom, and everything else, that you can be people of peace when everyone else feels like they're falling to pieces.